In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the gold dome. Today's episode is a little different. You're going to hear a portion of the conversation that took place at Politically Georgia's April 25th Pints in Politics event. You'll hear from GOP pollster and strategist Mark Roundtree, Emory University political scientist Professor Andre Gillespie, AJC political veteran Jim Galloway, and me. With the Georgia primaries approaching on May 22nd, we discussed everything related to the 2018 elections. And now, here's that discussion. If you had to pick a congressional district that Democrats would flip in November, which one would it be and why? I would be looking at the seven just because of the demographic changes. I mean, and then I would put maybe the six behind it, but I would say the seven more. That's the one where I would be focusing a lot of attention. Just because of the because 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 of the the the, the, the demographic changes, which is Asian, Hispanic, the whole the whole school. How about you? We had a discussion about this before. Um, is it okay to mention? Absolutely, please. All right, no, there, please. there is a, a point that someone had mentioned to you that actually Rick Allen, a congressman from Augusta. Um, has a larger African-American population, and there has been elevated African-American turnout in Georgia over the past year since Trump's election, um, and that therefore that may be higher. I actually still would go contrary with that. Um, I would probably say the seventh district as well, um, and it, it, part of it has to do with the simplicity of being able to campaign basically in one county. It's pretty much most of Gwinnett and a little bit of course foresight, but I think um, that probably, and, and I think the I think the, um, the Republicans and white voters in the 12th district, which is the Augusta area, again, they are considerably more conservative than Republicans in Gwinnett County, by and large, where you do get a lot more moderates that may be affected by, uh, we've all seen the polls that show education can be a factor, and that was that's maybe an important one to settle. How will what happened in, in, uh, in Florida with the high school impact, generally speaking, the entire, the, the, the election cycle? I mean, if it, or that poll that uh, Greg mentioned, uh, it showed uh, what? Uh, 77% of Democrats have a positive view of Delta, and, and about it, the same proportion have a negative okay. view of the NRA. You know, and I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, that Republicans will have a favorable, favorable view of, of, of the NRA. Uh, but does, does this... Still gonna like Delta, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Does, does this... Does this... Does this... Does, have, have the dynamics changed? Have, have the dynamics... 
of, of gun politics changed yet? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a complicated question. So, um, so I mean, I think that there are a number of issues. You know, is the NRA still going to back candidates who are inclined to support them? And so, I think the way we often frame this issue is that the NRA buys people and then they do whatever they want. It's actually, you know, these politicians actually have more agency. And so, if you're somebody who either wants to win over gun supporters or this is something that you truly believe, you make known that you are a supporter of gun rights. Um, and so you seek out opportunities to align yourself with the NRA. So it's not so much people are being sort of bought and sold. I think the question then becomes if somebody who maybe started off as you know um, a, a, a principal gun rights um, advocate then decides to change their mind, how reluctant are they to change that in light of the fact that they may lose support, or in light of the fact that they're being worried that you know the NRA or aligned groups might actually try to you know. Uh, field candidates against them or run campaigns against them. So I think it's important to sort of uh, stretch those things out. But in terms of the mobilization behind Parkland, um, that's a tough call in terms of is this going to activate young voters to participate at higher levels than they normally would in elections. I think for people who were directly affected by the election, uh, by that incident, yeah, they're going to stay politically engaged, and the people who are in their immediate orbit are likely going to be have a higher probability of being involved in politics in ways that they wouldn't have been relative to their peers. Um, but you still have the fundamental problem of this election um, and this electorate still being um, much, much older um, than uh, this group of young people who are now entering the electorate. and their parents and grandparents peers being more likely to turn up in an election than 18-year-olds. So, I mean, and this is just a life cycle issue. These folks are gonna have more consistent voting records when they're 40 than they are at 18 and 19 years old. Um, and so, and the kids who are participating were actually probably the kids who were gonna be the most likely to participate in the first place. You know, one of the things that people have talked about in Parkland is that the kids that we've seen on TV were the student leaders. They were the newspaper editor. They were the kids in drama. So they were the joiners who were most likely to be civically engaged and actually probably the ones who were going to be first to start engaging in politics. That's not necessarily going to be reflective of all 18-year-olds in this particular election. I do think that they do have some staying power, and I do think that they are energetic and engaged enough to do the type of outreach that can actually nudge up the probability of participation for some of their peers. But this election is still largely going to be decided by middle-aged and older voters the way it always is. Um, I want to unpack the Casey Kinkle part a little bit more, too. Um, you know, we obviously know his position on, on the Delta and NRA. We just heard about his constitutional carry position. Um, so on some issues, he's trying to you know race to the right and outflank his opponents and get there, get to that position for them. But in others, he's he seems to have one eye on November when it comes to constitutional carry. He didn't follow through with Brian Kemp. Brian, Brian Kemp uh, vowed to uh, pass the most restrictive abortion uh, limits in, in the nation after Mississippi uh, did theirs. Um, and, and Casey Cable did not follow through. It said that you know what we've got is fine. We don't need to go further. How do you think that sort of navigation will play into the And toss in Medicaid. Oh, yeah. And, and Casey Cable is also the only of the Republican leading candidates to back some sort of waiver for the Medicaid extension. All right. Um, I don't think any of this affects the first election. What's that? No, I said that's a good one. I, I don't think any of these issues affect the first election. Cagle has enough funding, momentum, and the rest. He's going to come in first place in the election, and I think most people kind of just 
I think we all agree to that, and I don't think there's anything new there. The question is, what, how do these secondary candidates at this point have to play? Um, right now, Kemp, who I would have thought would be stronger going into this election, has not had that great of a campaign so far. Um, for him to be competitive with a state senator is surprising, and that's Hunter Hill. And for both of them to be potentially competitive with Tippins, who no one had heard of six months ago, playing basically the same card that David Perdue did, of, I'm a businessman and I hate you all, um, that, that's, his, that's his deal. And you have three guys that are potentially scrambling around trying to get 16% of the vote to be in the runoff with Cagle, who probably gets into the high 30s, low 40s. I doubt he gets the majority. But as for how these issues play with Cagle, I think he's at this point, he's not trying to placate um, any particular group when it comes to a specific issue. Um, whether we agree on those issues or not, I think he probably, he's not, I don't frankly think he's moving that far to the right of the party icons. Actually, this, that was an interesting thing, that was an interesting observation being, I guess me on the right, maybe you not so much so, that you see him moving to the right, I see him moving actually to the left. So um, that's kind of interesting. I, I don't see him placating the folks that, I don't wanna say placating, but just basically automatically agreeing with uh, individual groups that really do have a lot of sway in Republican primaries. The Right to Life organizations, there are two significant ones, the NRA, Georgia Carey. He doesn't seem to be really trying to play to them anymore. He's trying to do just enough to make them not hate him. He's playing for the general election with the uh, advocacy groups. So I see this as a classic median voter type of situation, so to not be so jargony. Um, in political science, we often talk about how in, in primary elections, your electorate is truncated. And so if you were to um, ideologically array people on a line um, from left to right, you need to find whoever is the 50% plus one person. And that person is who you talk to. Well, that person in primaries is going to be more extreme than that median person is going to be in a general election. So, you know, a Republican is going to be more conservative. And then um, for a Democratic primary, that person is going to be more liberal. So when you're running in a primary, you do tend to run to the extremes a little bit more. But then you also have to have a mind to the general election where you're going to have to come back to the center a little bit more in order to be able to appeal to that November type of median voter. But, and, and, and so I, I think I see where you're coming from, Mark, but I'm going to stand my ground on this one. Um, I don't think that Casey Cagle is naturally inclined to go after Delta unless he was worried about his opponents making a much more credible sort of, you know, attack on sort of, you know, a liberal Atlanta organization. So he had to get some street credibility with that particular group. Now, I think the challenge for him is that, and this is where I agree with you, he knows he can't go but so far to the right and then be able to credible pivot back. So if you remember after uh, uh, Mitt Romney secured the Republican nomination in 2012, he talked about the Etch-a-Sketch moment. He's like, it's like an Etch-a-Sketch. I'm just gonna like, you know, shake it and erase it and start over again. And everybody was like, oh, how crass of you. And it's like, <laughs> but it's true. You just shouldn't say it like that openly. And so, um, so, so the challenge is to be able to move enough to the right so that you can secure your nomination so that you don't like, you know, end up, you know, in second place for a runoff, which I think would actually be embarrassing for him, even if he were able to pull off a, a runoff victory and then get it back to where you can now appeal to a broader spectrum. If he goes too far right, then that could be a problem for some of those upset independent voters who he's gonna need in order to be able to guarantee a victory in November. But he's got to appeal to the more ideologically driven based on a primary and still figure out how to play both sides and come back to the center in, in, in a general election. I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned the, the Etch-a-Sketch moment on the Republican side. I'm curious, 
what, you, what the three of you think that the Democrats, whoever the candidate may be, Stacey Evans or Abrams, can pull off a similar sort of edge, or even will try to pull off an edge of six ruling. Will the Democrats, especially uh, Stacey Abrams, uh, who has run as an unabashed progressive, who's taken a number of, of, of stances to, uh, on the party's left flank, um, and done so uh, you know, as part of the central part of her campaign strategy in order, in her words, to get the hundreds of thousands of left-leaning voters who rarely cast ballots to actually come out and vote for her. Um, can she make, will she and can she make that pivot back to the Senate? Okay, I, I know her, I've actually, uh, we've worked side by side on a campaign previously. She and I, I actually have unique um, respect for her intellect. She really is a smart person strategically. But I would say that the moment she called for sandblasting Stone Mountain, her campaign for governor ended, her campaign for the nomination was locked. I cannot conceive that she will be able to come back from that. You don't walk back blowing up Stone Mountain. And that was just a gaffe beyond gas because she did not have to do that to win this nomination. Well, it she was probably was going to win. It was a series of tweets, but I wasn't well, okay. Gaff tweet. I mean, yeah. we're we're semantics. There. I mean, she she decided she was running for the nomination when she basically called for that. that so I don't know how you come back from that. That being said, um, then the question becomes: if she's the nominee, and I think she will now be the nominee, she's raised twice as much money as Evans. It just doesn't show because Evans dropped in a million of her own, kind of hide that, but. She's raised twice as much. She's leading more than two to one in the polls. Um, and with three and a half weeks to go, a $500,000 advantage that Evans has is not going to overcome that kind of lead when 62% of the voters are going to be African American. So, uh, yeah, Abrams will be nominated. So, with that being said, now the question if you take my worldview for a minute, now this is just me being analytical. I'm not talking about uh, the individual candidates other than analytical. The question then becomes, does she cause a cratering effect on the entire Democratic ticket? That is possible, because the problem that she has analytically is that she is a technocrat. She is a smart strategist, but I think she has a hard time coming off as, um, as somebody that will have, a, 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 being able to win Republican votes. I don't see that happening. And independent voters in Georgia, I'll, I'll say it again, behaviorally a Republican. So I think here's how median voter applies on the Democratic side. It's just a question of identifying who that median voter is. And so I, I think that the, the Georgia gubernatorial race is actually a bit of a microcosm for national Democratic politics about sort of who we identify as the median voter. Um, you know, in Georgia and nationally, there has kind of been this idea that you are looking for somebody who's more ideological, ideologically moderate, and you're looking for somebody who's white. And I think the case that Stacey Abrams is making is that the demographics of the country are changing, and maybe that median voter is a woman of color. Um, and so what she's trying to do, and it's risky, and she and I have talked about this, we know each other. Um, what is risky is, is, again, when you're trying to go after new voters and get them in, when new voters are integrated into a system, they typically are unreliable at first. And so it's a question of, has she been able to target and touch enough new voters and educate them so that they become regular participants? And will that manifest itself in this election or will it manifest itself in a future election cycle? I think, especially in this state, 2014 is actually pretty instructive here. Um, and in terms of looking at the strategy of if we're going to go for a median voter strategy, so you go for moderate science of old Democratic dynasties to see if they can win elections. 
and they got African-American votes. They just didn't get white votes. Um, and they did abysmally um, amongst white voters. So then the, Michelle Nunn and Jason Carter. Um, so then the question becomes, in this particular election, um, if you do run more as a progressive, and if you do happen to be a person of color, you know, are people going to be so turned off by your race that like you don't get like white turnout? And I think the question is, the bar was very low after 2014. Could she possibly do any worse? So you know, if you know Stacey Abrams only got 15 percent of the white vote, I guess the the answer to that question is no, and then that would suggest a more traditional median voter strategy. But if she can do as well or better than none in Carter, and in particular if she can drive up minority turnout and get a higher vote share amongst those constituencies, even though Carter and Nunn did pretty well amongst African American voters in particular, then that makes the case that who we think is our median voter is different and we need to be thinking about a different, wider, more diverse electorate. I think that that's the test. So for me, it's not a question of whether or not she wins or loses. I'm actually more interested in the demos and from an academic question, if she outperforms where Carter and Nunn were four years ago, even if she actually ends up not winning the, the, the office, I'd say that she, she had a moral victory. That's all from Pints and Politics. For more election-related stories, visit politicallygeorgia.com. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.